Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rivals. People competing with another for the same objective or superiority in the same field of activity. Fantastic rivalry. It was intense. A lot of passion showed in it. I think the game that both teams look forward to every season. When you're the number one side in the world, everyone's going to play their best game against you. It's one thing being the hunter, but when you're the hunted, you're there to be shot at. Both chasing the same goals and dreams. I remember feeling really sorry for him. I knew I was going to beat him. I think there was needle between the teams, but just through wanting to beat each other so badly. You know, there was a mutual respect. Each fighting against the other. I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. I thought, wow, is it really that serious? When you're suffering and someone's better than you on the day and you're doing everything you possibly can to hold on to, to them and not let that gap get any bigger than a metre and you're praying for the end to come or you're praying for the next corner so you can rest a little bit. They're the hardest days. In this series, we bring together famous sporting rivals to hear a shared story from both sides. The triumph. The tragedies, the victories, the near misses, the laughter, and the sorrow. This is Reunited on TalkSport. In the 1980s and 1990s, the sport of snooker gripped the nation. Millions went snooker loopy for men in waistcoats and bow ties, hitting coloured balls across a green base. The game filled the TV schedules, and the players became superstars. In this episode of Reunited, we bring together two of the biggest players from this era, six-time world champion Steve Davis, and the man who many see as the greatest player of all time, Stephen Hendry. In the early 70s, snooker was still a game played in smoky snooker halls, accompanied by pints of bitter. But encouraged by his father, a young Steve Davis was keen to take up the game. I knew my father went to the local workingmen's club uh, with his cue in his hand and he played for the league team. Uh, on occasions I'd go to the workingmen's club and watch it unfold at weekends. And so very quickly I became a, a fan of snooker and wanted to play it because of my father. So fortunately for me I followed in my father's footsteps in his hobby, not his, in his job. It became clear early on that the young Davis had talent, and he soon came to the attention of an entrepreneur and snooker hall owner called Barry Hearn. What made my transition from being a, an amateur and a promising amateur to professional was a mixture of the fact that 
I had good backing behind me, not just my father who was supporting me uh, after I left school. And by that time, I bumped into Barry Hearn, who owned a, a chain of snooker clubs and really enthused about getting involved in snooker at grassroots level and then became my manager by default by organising snooker events. And before we knew it, it was player-manager relationship. And it was him that actually went, let's turn professional now, even though I hadn't won the English Amateur Championship, which was the one that was supposed to guarantee to turn professional. And so I wasn't really thinking any along the terms of making any money out of the game. The only reason I thought it might be good to turn professional is because I could play my heroes and perhaps play the next level to improve, a bit like a gunslinger looking for more and more competition. Davis's decision to turn professional was a timely one. Snooker was about to be revolutionised by the power of television. It was about to hit the big time. I fell in love with something that wasn't really flavour of the decade in the 70s, but somewhere down the line, um, TV decided that snooker would be good as a vehicle for colour television. The viewing figures were fantastic. And then somewhere down the line, I think going back in time, it must have been around the sort of 77, 78 period, quite late on in the 70s, it was considered that perhaps we could show the whole of the World Championship in its entirety on TV. And overnight, 1979, Terry Griffiths won the World Championship. Overnight, the whole of the country started to watch snooker. Fortunately for me, I was in the right place at the right time because I'd turned professional in 78 and was there to effectively capitalise on what became the sport, the flavour of the 80s. And in a very short space of time, snooker became overground and people that had never even walked up a snooker, uh, the stairs of a snooker club, became overnight experts, became fans of the game. We had a, a whole swathe of, of grannies who'd never been in a snooker club, who, who were absolutely besotted with the game. And for most of the 80s, most of my fan base possibly didn't possess their own team. If TV revolutionised how the public viewed the game, Steve Davis was radically changing how the sport was played. Just a few years after turning professional, he claimed his first world championship, an 18-12 win over Doug Mountjoy. And that's it. The world snooker champion, 1981, Steve Davis. Even though the journey hadn't had too many hiccups, it's still a journey. So between my father and Barry Hearn and myself, we were sort of a, quite a tight team. My father, my coach, Barry, my manager, so to speak. And when, when we won, it was personal. It was us against the rest of the world. And uh, so whilst I shook hands with Doug Mountjoy, the guy I beat, and then all of a sudden the next minute I see Barry Hearn running towards me like an Exocet missile. Nothing I could do about it. Uh, he was going to hit me like a ton of bricks. And, you know, I was ready to grizzle and cry on my father's shoulder because of the emotion of it all. But, and it was Barry that was sort of giving it the big, we told you so, and all of that. Congratulations there to the Embassy World Champion, Steve Davis, from his manager, Barry Hearn. The young man, just 23 years of age, coming from Plunstead, London, is now, I believe, crying with joy on taking this title. The burden he's carried from before the championships here at Sheffield made odds-on favourites and has carried the banner right the way through a terrific performance. He has been faultless 
and most consistent in every shot he has played over the most difficult of matches. He has now overcome Doug Mountjoy in the final and become the Embassy World Champion 1981. But while Steve Davis was conquering the world of snooker up in Scotland, a young Stephen Hendry was getting his first experiences of the game that would change his life. I got a snooker table for my Christmas, uh, but two weeks before my 13th birthday. Six foot by three foot, so about a quarter the size of a full-size table. And that was the first time I'd ever lifted a snooker cue. It was, it was a complete fluke. Uh, my mum and I were walking along a high street in uh, Dunfermline near where I lived. I'd had everything that everybody wants as Christmas presents as a boy, you know, bikes, um, football strips, you know, whatever. And she didn't really, she was at a loss really what to get me. And she seen this little snooker table in the window of a shop, a retail shop in, in the high street, and said, what do you think of that? And I said, yeah, fine. And, and basically that, that, was, that was the extent of, of my sort of previous with snooker. Very soon it became obvious that the young Stephen Hendry had natural talent when it came to snooker. I started making 40, 50 breaks after a couple of weeks. Um, basically, I, I just fell in love with it. I was playing it all the time. Any, any spare minute of the day, I was just on that table. So yeah, it was, it was something that obviously had a, had a natural gift to play. Didn't really, really realise how good I was compared to other people. It's kind of like, you know, I suppose if you get a football, you think anyone sort of kick a football around. I thought it, maybe it's, this is an easy game, I don't know. Um, but obviously I started beating my dad, my brother, my uncles, um, then started my mates would come around, I'd beat them, and I started thinking, well, it's got a little bit, a bit of a buzz because it's something that I'm actually better than a lot of other people at. And then you, you make the progression to going up to full-size tables and playing in junior tournaments. So yeah, I improved very quickly. Meanwhile, Steve Davis was getting used to his newfound fame. Overnight, my life changed. Not, not in winning the, in 81, the World Championship, but like sort of once I was on television. You have to remember back then, three television channels, no internet. And overnight, I realised everybody was, was recognising me. So much so, I remember being in the service station, I think it was Watford Gap service station, ordered a plate of food. And I remember sitting down eating my food and I remember thinking, people are watching me eating my food. And I thought, I wonder if my eating technique's right. I, I, you know, do I, should I close my mouth before I, you know, don't open my mouth? And I, I realised that you're being watched all the time. An, an inordinate amount compared to what you, how you would watch somebody else. Then your life changes. You are, you're in a goldfish bowl. But, nice bowl to be in. It's like being in a big holiday camp. One of the millions watching Steve Davis on TV was Stephen Hendry. But he wasn't just watching. He was learning. That's basically how I taught myself to play snooker, as I would watch the likes of Steve Davis, Jimmy White, Alex Higgins, all the, all the best players around at the time. And if they played a shot, I would remember that, go onto my little table, try to recreate that. Um, so yeah, that's basically how I learned to play snooker, was from these guys on the TV. By the mid-80s, Steve Davis had won two more world championships and picked up countless other titles. Put simply, he dominated the sport of snooker was one of the most recognisable sportsmen in the country. But Stephen Hendry, who had turned professional at just 16, was eyeing Davis's crown. Steve Davis was winning everything, and that's what started to resonate with me. I wanted to be a winner. I didn't want to be like the people's champion. I wasn't interested. I wanted to be, I wanted to have what Steve Davis had, be the best, be world number one. But to be number one in the world would take a new level of hard work, determination, and dedication. When I turned pro, I was still kind of doing it in an amateur way. I was going to a club, playing a couple of hours with my mates, then spending two or three hours playing three-car brag, 
maybe playing fruit machines, having a laugh, not really doing it professionally at all. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Ian Doyle had become a manager. He came through in a sort of spying mission, basically to see what I, how I was doing, what, what, was, what, what was my practice routines, what was, what was I doing. And um, I had a word with the manager of the club and he told him this was basically my daily routine. And Ian sort of summoned me to his office in Stirling and says, look, I'm going to take care of you, you know, financially support you, do ever, take care of everything. But if I'm going to do that, you're going to work. My dad never believed that, that I needed to practice that much. He thought my talent was going to be enough. So Ian said, whatever your, your dad says, you know, they always, I always had a, a disagreement about this, that you, your talent's not enough. So basically he started me on a regime of going to Stirling, change club, going to Stirling. My dad would drop me off at 10 in the morning and I'd stay there till six. So basically I was, I was seven, you know, an hour off for lunch maybe. So I was basically seven hours a day, seven days a week, practicing on my own. Just me, just me and the table. It was just... It was quite a, a scary in the beginning. It was it was horrible. I hated it because I was used to playing with mates, having a laugh, just being you know, just playing when I wanted to. Now it was like a job. I had to turn up on time every day. I had to leave at the same time every day. But I have to say, after two or three weeks, although it was really hard, I seen an immediate improvement in my game. I was getting sharper. My positional play was getting better. I was clearing up more often than not, and I, and I really started to see the benefit. Not long after that, I won the Scottish Professional Championship. So it kind of like ingrained in me that this was the way to go, the work ethic that I needed to be the best. Still to come on Reunited on TalkSport. It seemed like it was right to the top of the mountain, then all of a sudden guaranteed to go down the other side. And you're basically then holding on for dear life. The World Championship where I, I said to my wife um, before I went down for the first round, can you bring that jacket? I want to wear it after the final to the party. Big headed. This is Reunited on TalkSport. And in this episode, we've brought back together two snooker greats, Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. The title of 1989 Embassy World Champion goes to Steve Davis. And the 1994 Embassy Snooker Champion of the World, Stephen Hendry. In the mid-80s, Steve Davis dominated the sport of snooker and thanks to the millions watching on TV, was a household name. Stephen Hendry, meanwhile, was just starting out as a professional, but he was determined to usurp Davis as the best player in the world. Their paths would cross over the green bays on numerous occasions over the years, but can they remember the first time they played against each other? I, actually, I, I can't though, when, when, I, I can't even remember I, the first. I, I, re I remember you were, you were so easy to beat. Yeah. You know, like you were just tactically very Devoid. Devoid, yeah. yeah. So, so it was, even though you were dangerous, you, you just sort of made, I remember, it didn't, it wasn't a problem to start with, but I don't remember the first time we played. No. Yeah, I, the I, thing is, I thought, I was just hoping you'd never learn any of that tactical <laughs> thing. <laughs> well, I didn't really. I, I, I learned a wee bit, but um, yeah, I was talking about the tour we'd done in Scotland, the six night tour. And, and yeah, I mean, it's just like exhibitions for you, wasn't it? For me, it was like trying to, I was yeah. so like hyped up for yeah. it. But yeah, you just toyed with me really, didn't you? Well, back then, I, I, you know, you were a brand new player coming through, and it, I'd seen a few brand new players coming through, and I had no reason to suspect. And then, and then all of a sudden, we're playing each other, and I wasn't having any trouble beating you. I, th I, I was saying before, and I, th I seem to remember beating you nine nil in the event. I don't know mm. what it was. I mean, you know, and you were still a great player, but you know, I just sort of basically won. Frames, yeah, you're, you know, frames you're, you're, that I shouldn't have won because of the tactics more than anything else. Yeah, the, the type of snooker you played was was beyond me at, um, that, time, at, yeah. at that time. It was completely, um, I mean, it was just, 
I, I just seen pots and went for them. And as I say, Steve must have been sat in his chair just rubbing his hands. You say, oh, here we go. I'll just, I'll just put the cue ball in the bolt cushion and, and he'll go for something crazy. I'll, I'll make a 60 or 70 break. Because he didn't really want to make centuries, did you? It wasn't, that wasn't the way. <laughs> that, 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 wasn't the way we, that wasn't the way the game was played back then. I, yeah. You, you, you pushed the, the you, barriers. You were too of, clinical. Yeah, and, and, and I'd, I'd grown up in an era where what you did was you kept your foot on somebody's neck. Mm. So you didn't risk missing a shot for fear that they may get back in, right? Mm. So you, let, but all you did, you, you potted what was there. That was the old school way. You yeah. potted what was there, and then instead of trying to let them get back in the game, you put them back on the bottom cushion and basically strangle the life out of them. And that had worked throughout the whole of the 80s. Nobody could live with that standard. Mm. And you were the first person who came into the game who proved that that wasn't necessarily the way to play the game. With, with balance, obviously. And all of a yeah. sudden, I couldn't then hold you because you were too strong, but you got your balance right of your game. It just kept coming. Even though I was getting punished for these ridiculous pots I was taking on, it didn't, I, I never got deflated by it. I, I, just, I just kept coming. I knew, I, I kind of just had the confidence in my ability to eventually, the balls were going to go in. Um, and it was, it was, I mean, it was demoralising. That, that, that I, would, I would so look forward to playing, you think, this is the one, this is the one. Um, and and then just get demoralised, you know. Say nine nil, nine two. I think the first the first sort of long frame matches we play were just just hammer jobs. It was just a different, <coughs> completely different standard of snooker that you were playing. I, I remember the first time I lost. I think I lost to Steve was in a co- tournament called the Rothmans Grand Prix. But I'd had cue problems then. I, I, my, oh, my here we go. Broke. Here we go. Oh, I can't believe <laughs> that old it. one. That old yeah, one. Yeah, well, so you never, you, you never came out with the old. Well, I broke my cue in, 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 in transit, <laughs> and now I can't play the game. It's in four pieces. The, well, I had a cue problems, and but I never said anything about it at the time. But now I'm telling you, you never won that game. It was funny, cause... but. The first time that really hurt was the UK Championship. Then, if Two you problems aside, that was a massive moment for my career. I'm sure it was, yeah. But I mean, I had, I had my ferrule broke. Anyway, beside the point, um, when you finally did beat me in the, in the UK Championship in the final, mm. and then David Vine interviewed me first and went end of an era. Was that the 1817 one? Yeah, the close one. Yeah. yeah. Went end of the, an era and turned to you. I was like, bloody cheek. Like, you know. What do you mean end of an era? No, it's just another match. But it proved to be right that it was the end of an era. He turned to you as the as the UK champion, and and I think the UK championship has always been a great yardstick for the strongest players. Well, in the it game. was it was a four session final. Mm. I mean, it's not not anymore, but that was you know the world championship was four session final. So was that. So it was like it was a, you know the test, a big a huge test of, of of a snooker player, and it was obviously to to beat you over four sessions was monumental for me. Despite Davis's defeat to the new kid on the block, for the rest of the 1980s, he maintained his iron grip on the world championship title. So I, You're I, still world number one. I was world number one. I won the, I won the world championship 87, yeah. 88, 89, and I was the dominant force in the game uh, at that time. I think I was, I was sports personality of the year in 1988, which is hard to believe that either one of us was sports personality <laughs> of anything. And I was unbeatable. Steve Davis's final world title was in 1989, and in that year, he and Stephen Hendry met for the first time in a world championship semi-final. And it was the young man from Scotland who was taught a lesson by the man who had ruled snooker for the best part of a decade. I felt I was ready to win the world championship. Obviously, I wasn't because the way Steve beat me, I clearly wasn't. My game wasn't wasn't there. I didn't have the game to to match him in that semi-final. Steve was still world number one. I remember after the third session going back to the hotel 
and screaming about the luck of the run of the balls you were having to Ian, my manager. I thought it was a horrendous run of the Obviously it wasn't, but that was my impression. Um, that, that was what was beating me. But, you know, if you look back at it now, you'd think I was just being outplayed. Um, you know, and that was, it's as simple as that. Sometimes you just got to look and say it wasn't, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to win yet. Uh, next year, obviously, was my, was my year. Yeah, my game wasn't good enough. And, and for that occasion, semi-final of the World Championship at Crucible, my game just wasn't good enough to beat him. Stephen Hendry might not have been the master of the famous Crucible Theatre in 1989, but unlike many players before and after him, he had proved he could perform in one of sport's most unique and pressurised venues. But why does the Crucible have such an effect on some players? Steve Davis. I think the Crucible Theatre, more than any other venue for snooker players, is the one that's going to find you out. Uh, and we see people collapsing there that wouldn't necessarily do it anywhere else. And if you're not ready to play at the, the Crucible, then you're not the complete player. Uh, but then you need experience in that, in that area as well. I think Joe Johnson, who was a world champion in 86, hadn't won a match up until the time he won a match in that first round of that year. Um, and then I think, you know, like any sport, confidence is, is a very important part of it. You can have all of the technique, all of the match play, or, or, or everything, but if you're not winning, you're still down at the bottom effectively. And then all of a sudden, once you start winning, you, you, you get the flavour for it and you, get the, you, you actually learn, you sort of break the code of it in a bit. A bit. Mm. And, then, and so your job as a professional snooker player is to stop everybody else from winning so they don't, they don't crack the code. The trouble is, once they're out of the box, it's hard to get them back in again. And, and that was the case, obviously, with Stephen. And then, not just Stephen, and then the floodgates opened and loads of other people started <laughs> to think they could win as well. It was diabolical. It wasn't just... He just opened a can of worms. Next minute, it's players like Ken Doherty fancy their chances. And, and then John Parrott started to try and win as well. It was ridiculous. I thought I had John Parrott in a box tied up. <laughs> Stephen Hendry. So, yeah, the, the crucible. You know, Steve's right. You know, you, you see players these days and, and they're winning tournaments all over the world, and, but they come to the crucible and it's like a rabbit in the headlights. Um, it is a completely different mindset playing the crucible, backstage, everything. You can't get out of players' way sometimes. You walk the corridors are tight right in the backstage and everything. My first years, Steve knew you wouldn't even look at anyone. And I tried to bring that on to another level. Even improve my level in snooker, but improve my level of miserableness, because um, that was because it's, it's important in snooker to you know I joke, but it's important I think to be the best snooker players to keep to keep apart from the other players. I mean, part of my downfall in them was being friendly, um, because that you're mixing and you're hearing things and you're just then you become you're not focused. Part of winning the world championship in the Crucible is, is during the world championship is not being there. I think. Because sometimes, you know, near the end, you can get drawn into hanging around the lounges and speaking to players. In the beginning, I'm sure you would say, I, I, when I was winning World Championship, I would just, like, win my match and I'd be out of there. You just, you just don't want to be there because you're, you're mixing with players all the time. But it is, it's the biggest test and it should always be. Um, the long-frame matches. Um, and, and that's why, you know, players that win other tournaments don't necessarily win there. But as the 80s faded and the 1990s emerged, it became obvious that there was to be a shift in power in the world of snooker. I won the first two tournaments of the, the next season and then the wheel fell off. And all of a sudden, things started to go wrong. Uh, and it coincided, funnily enough, with me getting married. 
But I really don't think that's anything to do with it. I think it's just the fact that a new standard was coming along. But, of course, then everybody says, well, do you think it was that? You know, is your life changing? All these other things come around as well. Um, but in the end, it's down to the fact that another standard was coming along and I was struggling to deal with it and I didn't have enough in my armoury or mentality, strong enough mentally, to, to change. With Stephen Hendry now established as part of the snooker circuit, it meant the two rivals spent much more time together, something Steve Davis candidly admits he disliked. Well, we started to tour more, more together, um, but these were tournaments, and, and from my perspective, he was my biggest problem. He was the biggest thorn in my side, and I didn't really like Stephen. Yeah, I didn't know him, but I didn't like him. <laughs> Why would I like him? He's, got, he's nicked my sweet box. Um, so we didn't really talk and, much. And, also, you know? and also, I was about 10 years younger. Yeah, than so you weren't necessarily... Didn't have much in yeah, common, really, no, did we? No, but he, he was just that, you know, he was just, I don't want to talk to him. I don't, want to, I, I, I don't want him to win. I'm hoping he fails all the time. I want his confidence to be busted so that it makes my job easier. So every time he wins on the, you know, and I'm not involved in the final stages and I'm watching the television, I'm not watching the television because I don't want to watch him winning all the time. And, and that's sort of a fascinating thing. I don't know how you then viewed when the next, you know, when Ronnie O'Sullivan came along, but I absolutely hated you. Not because, of, not, not for any other reason mm. other than the fact you were the reason why I wasn't dominant. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, as the years go on, you realise you're the same animal. And then you start to become... You've got, you've got so much more in common, a bit like two politician prime ministers mm. who hate each other, but then further down the line, they're like best mates in another way. And, it, and you realise that you've, you've both been through the same ringer. I, I loved it. I love being the best player in the world. Obviously, you know, the, the, it's, you don't actually... I think when you're in the middle of a match, um, you know, you don't think, oh, my, this is great fun. I don't, you, you never stop and think, oh, this is... A, this is a, well, I didn't anyway, but you, it's just you're just there in the moment. You're mm. doing it. This, it's your job. But I mean, I, I loved being the best player in the world. I mean, there was just no, no better feeling. And I loved the fact of everyone talking about you were the one man to beat. I mean, you go to the tournament, you're the favorite. Is you go to Sheffield, obviously it was the same for you in the 80s, me in the 90s, is, is it going to be Steven's year again? Is it going to be Steve's year again? It's all yeah, about yeah. you. Yeah. And, then, and then constantly when you get to the end and they're not talking about you, that's when it hurts. That, that hurt me. Well, when you no longer yeah. become the favorite, you're not talked about as, as a winner. I only felt pressure once, uh, once I wasn't the world number one. When mm. uh, so the '90s was when all of a sudden I was under pressure, and that's when I started to try to work out what I wasn't doing that I'd done before. And that's when you try too hard, and the moment you try too hard, you're finished mm. because you've got to play with confidence and play freely. And then the next minute, you you basically got a, a lead weight on your arm. So there's no pressure when you're winning. When you're when you've got that bubble of superiority, you are invincible, and it's just every day is a wonderful day. And look at all the others; they're all they're the ones that are all struggling, <laughs> and they all hate you, and you don't mind them hating you because actually, oh, they resent you. You don't mind it. No. They they'll be friendly, but they secretly resent you. And the next minute, from being the one that they'll resent, then you're in the same you're in the same boat, and you're resenting somebody else. It's great. There's, there's no better feeling than going to the table just knowing that the other guy can't beat you. I mean, it's just just a lovely feeling. You just go there and you just think, just it doesn't matter. Even if I play rubbish, you just know they can't beat you, and that's that. You have that superiority. You have that fear factor over the other players, um, and it, and it's and it's the best feeling in the world as, as, a, as a sportsman. It's fantastic. On occasions, uh, you'd be playing a player <clears throat> in a round, and you'd see them in the morning checking out of the hotel. <laughs> that's a nice feeling. 
when Terry, that Terry Griffiths used to, uh, the ones abroad, he used to bring his suitcase to the venue. Just in case, because yeah. he didn't want to be there. <laughs> Straight to the airport. So once Hendry became top dog, how did Davis react? Uh, when, I, when I was no longer uh, the, the winning force in the game and Stephen took over, um, I didn't have an effigy of him that I was sticking pins <laughs> in. Uh, I certainly didn't have any pictures on the wall that I was throwing darts at or anything like that. It, it, it was just a case that, that, that I looked inwardly to, to what I was doing wrong. If I'd have been able to, at the time, have gone, well, he's a great player... He's doing right. What is he doing that I'm not? Not what am I doing wrong? I may have been in a better situation mentally myself, but I couldn't see past my, the, the, the end of my queue. Uh, and so I, I went into my cave a bit. I went into, into the practice room with my father and we tried to work out how could I improve my technique. Well, it wasn't particularly broken anyway, but that's what I went to. And, it, and, and in the past it worked going that way but then it stopped working. So then, from then on, throughout the 90s, which were an awful time for me competitively, even though I won tournaments, I didn't really, I really didn't like you know, the 90s as a, as a time period. Yeah, people, newspaper reporters, weren't, it wasn't the same interview. It, the, the commentators weren't the same commentary. They weren't commentating the same way. They're looking for mistakes. They're criticising you more. They've got reason to criticise you. And it became, a, it became a, a, an uphill struggle. Um, and that turnaround... It seemed like it was right to the top of the mountain, then all of a sudden it's guaranteed to go down the other side. And you're basically then holding on for dear life, trying to sort of you know, forever sort of pick up the pieces and juggle whatever bits yeah. you can. It was a lovely feeling to be the best in the world, to almost take for granted winning tournaments, to almost just like at the start of a season say, how many am I going to win this year? Not like, will I win one this year? How many will I win this year? And that's that's how, how confident I was. I mean, there was one time the World Championship, where I said to my wife, um, before I went down for the first round, can you bring that jacket? I want to wear it after the final, to the party. Big-headed. And, and, I, and I won it, you. and I won it. She I brought the jacket, I won it. I could have killed Mike Hallett. <laughs> I could have killed Mike Hallett. How can you lose from 8-2 in front? I could have killed him. <laughs> I regret not playing Steve in a, in a final of the World Championship. I think um, there was, a, there was a, you know, the sort of transition period of five, six years, whether we were bat still battling for world number one. Um, I think the, the only time I beat you in the semi-final, that was to decide world number one, because I remember I potted the winning ball and I sort of bowed my head on the table because it was just a relief of, yeah, I've kept, I was number one at the time, so I kept it. If I'd lost, Steve would have been world number one. So that sort of period when we were one and two and really having battles, it would have been amazing to play Steve in a world final. It would have been something to, to look back on. In hindsight, yes, it would have been lovely, I think, if we'd have played in the final. At the time, I probably wouldn't have liked it because I think, you know, Steve would have been on the up, I'd have been struggling a, a bit. But even so, it would have been nice to have played in a world final. Um, and... Uh, funnily enough, as the years went on, and I played Stephen in the 90s when he was dominant, and, and then into the 2000s as well, I, I, every now, whenever I did beat Stephen, which wasn't many times, because he was like, he just, you know, he spanked me far too many times for my own good. My psychoanalyst has got most, rid of most of it, but I've still got the scars. When I did win, there was quite, they were quite sweet moments, you know, and they, and they, they possibly justified all the practice and all of the hard work and the, the heartache of going, what have I done wrong? What, where did I go wrong? What, what's wrong with my game compared to what it used to be? On the odd occasion. So I would imagine, hopefully, from Stephen's perspective, also, even though in the end there's another, you know, players come along and you don't play as well, when you did win occasional matches... Mm. Still, it's still a wonderful feeling. And the win is, for the moment it happens, you're so elated. It, I don't think it ever really gets over the losses. 
the losses hurt far more. Still to come on Reunited on TalkSport. But the, the greatest of the, the next era, I think, will always beat the greatest of the previous era, regardless of the personalities. And now you're playing in a little room, with playing against a 20-year-old with his mum and dad watching, clapping every shot. That was it just done my head in. I couldn't enjoy it. I hated it. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Reunited on Talksport. And in this episode, we're heading back to the glory days of snooker in the company of former world champion Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. And early Steve Davis likes snooker. 52. I think he's just as good a player as he always was. He just lost his little bit of confidence, but it doesn't look like it today, does it? He's obviously lost so many matches to Stephen Hendry. As we said, it was 10 out of the last 11, so he intends making up for that. Between them, Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry dominated the world of snooker for two decades, winning 13 world titles between them. But like all great sportsmen and women, eventually they faced an opponent that neither could overcome. The passage of time. Steve Davis. So I had a couple of events that I won towards the latter end of my of the 90s and, and occasionally I, I won a, a quarter final of the world championship a, a second round match of the world championship final against the world champion that year the previous year against John Higgins and I thought I won the world championship because I beat him and I beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final of another tournament and, and it was just what it was so much sweeter than it was before but the trouble is in the end, I mean, from Stephen's perspective, I still possibly, Stephen might not have done, but I still thought, even though Stephen retired, I thought there was still an outside chance there was a tournament victory in you. Mm. But you went, nope, black and white, which I absolutely respected at the time because I went on too far, too long. But you went black and white, no, I'm not enjoying it, I'm giving up, which, which is just as valid. Mm. By the way, it's just it's just the way you. But I still think you had another tournament of some sort in you. Um, I mean, there was a chat. I mean, I, I could have won that world championship. You know, I'd beaten I'd, I'd beaten John Higgins in the second. It was a terrible match. I don't. You know, John was terrible, and I, I wasn't much better. But I, I won the match, and then the next match that I went out, I lost thir- thirteen two to Steve Maguire. 
Um, I was 3-0 down. I had a pink to pot to make it 3-1. Um, I completely yipped it. My cue action was just, it just decelerated. It was horrible. And I went back to the dressing room and just said, that, that's it. Um, had you already made the decision to retire before? Yes. So that's yes. quite a strange thing. Yeah. That's so quite a strange thing to enter a tournament knowing you're going to retire at the end of this. And I had to qualify as well for, for, for the World Championship for the first time since I was 16. Look, look at, I mean, look at it now in a way, it's a coward's way out. I do look at it like that. Like it was an easy way out. Um, I was I was suffering so badly with my game. I had an opportunity to do something in China, um, which I thought, you know, I'll take it because I, I was just suffering in my game. I just had to get out basically. If I could get out, maybe a couple of years and come back. But the, the way the game was, it's changed now. The way the game was then, you had to play in everything. Um, now you can kind of sort of pick and choose. You don't have to play in every tournament. You know, there was there was all these little tournaments that I hated playing in. There were, you know, to me there was. They were degrading to me. You played the Crucible, you played at the, the conference centre, and and now you're playing in a little room with playing against a 20 year old with his mum and dad watching, clapping every shot. That was it just done my head in. I couldn't enjoy it. Hated it. I detested his parents. I mean, how can you detest people you don't even know? I used to glare at them when they were clapping. I used to detest you. I used to glare at them when they were clapping. They must have thought, oh, I was seething. But see them with like not at them, basically at myself because I was my game had just been shot, and and I just wasn't enjoying it, and it was just um, yeah, it was just horrible. Stephen Hendry retired from snooker in 2012, Steve Davis in 2016, and the sport lost two of its greatest ever players. But who was the best? Davis radically changed the game in the 80s. Hendry did the same in the 90s. But if they had played each other when they were both in their prime. Who would have come out on top? We, we were asked this one night. Do you remember? When? Were, were we? Yeah, we, we, we both lost in a tournament in Thailand once in Bangkok and we, and we decided to have a night and just go out and get pissed. What, and socialise? Yeah, and someone actually came up and asked us this question. Really? Yeah, uh, who was best would win? Basically, we were too drunk to answer, but... That's best, probably the best way. It's a good story because I went to the bar to get a drink and I turned around and asked Steve what he wanted and I looked around and he was actually on the dance floor and he's on dancing. Yeah. One of the I best was, sights I've ever seen. Yeah, I was, uh, I was telling the DJ where he'd gone wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, to answer your question about who, who would have been best in their pomp, my opinion has always been uh, that every era improves. So my, my answer would be that Stephen, the best of Stephen would beat the best of me because I think the... St- the style is the, is the definitive moment. We're both winners of our eras. If I could have grown up in another era, if I could have grown up Here's to, a question today's for you. era, that's another playing, story. If but... you were playing a snooker, you were playing in the 80s, dominating. No. Where do you think you'd be ranked? Um, I, think you'd be, I think you'd be in the top eight. I tend to think, the, I, I, and I know we disagree on this, I, I just think the standards forever got better, not just of the middle ground players, but also the top players as well. I think I would struggle to be in the top 16 playing 1986-style snooker. And I'll tell you the reason why, right? 1985 World Championship final, me and Dennis Taylor, there wasn't a century break made in the final. Mm. And I was playing some of the best, you know, I, I, well, we may have collapsed a bit in the final, but, but we, I was still, we were still the cutting yeah, but edge you're, But you were a big occasion winning player. That's what I'm on about. Yeah, I can't, yeah, but if somebody knocks the balls in from the, and, they're on, and you rivet into the bottom cushion and they knock a ball in, all of a sudden that, that's mm. debilitating. I didn't have anybody punching against me. Mm. And, and I think once you've got the confidence that nobody can hurt you, it's a lot easier to play the game. The next generation can hurt you. So therefore I think you'd have hurt me 
you'd have heard me in the, the attacking style that, you know, the one-visit snooker that started mm. to become the trend. And my safety play, for want of a um, you know, more simplistic view, it, you can't win playing safe, but, but you, can, you can obviously beat players who can't play the game, so to speak, nicest possible way. But I think the next generation gets even harder yeah, it gets more and more attacking. So I, I do think that Stephen's 95 standard would beat my 85 standard. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting thing is that by saying that, I wouldn't, you know, whenever this goes out, there'll be people on Twitter, which apparently is something that everybody takes notice of, um, saying, you're doing yourself down. Well, don't do yourself down. You were a great player, blah, blah, blah. It's not about that. I know I was a great player and you know, I, was, I was the best player in my era. What I'm doing is analysing the, the trend of snooker players, not individuals even so much, but, you know, but the, the greatest of the, the next era, I think, will always beat the greatest of the previous era, regardless of the personalities. You're listening to Reunited on TalkSport. And in this episode, we've brought back together snooker greats Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. So when they look back at their glittering careers, what are their favourite moments in the game? My personal favourite moment, well, for, for all the fact I won six world championships, the two favourite uh, personal moments for me of, of elation that I got in the game was beating John Higgins in the second round of the world championship in 2000, whatever it was, when I shouldn't, when he was the world champion and I was just an, an also ran, playing one of the best matches I've ever played in my life and, and proud to beat what a great player John Higgins is and, um, and also beating Ronnie O'Sullivan, uh, from 8-4 behind in the 97 Masters Championship when nobody should have given me a chance. So my personal elation was when I wasn't supposed to win uh, and the surprise and, and the, the excitement and the joy that gave me. Yeah, that, I mean, obviously it's, it's very difficult to pin them down to, to, to one or two. I think um, people always ask my, my favourite performance. I think one of them is definitely beating Ken Doherty in the final of the UK when I made seven centuries uh, in the final. And another, I made a one-four-seven in the deciding frame against Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final of the charity challenge. Um, those those two are like amazing moments. Um, obviously, winning world championships—the first one to be the youngest and the seventh to break the record—are are magnificent moments. But when you pin it down to actually how you've things that have made you given you a real buzz to do, um, then those couple of things are probably right up there. And do they miss the game now that they've stopped playing? I I, I miss it. I missed. I, I say I missed the occasion. I miss, you know, when we work for TV and we're and we're standing beside each other at the at the table the final night the crucible with a microphone. I want a cue in my hand. I'm still jealous of the player. I don't think I'll ever leave me. I'm still jealous of the players that get to walk down the steps with a cue in their hand and actually compete. Um, I don't miss the grind. You know, that's the worst thing. The worst thing as a snooker player is the grind of the six seven hours a day you have to do to be at the top to be sharp. But I'll always miss the occasion. Funnily enough, uh, people ask if you know, did you miss it? I, I don't miss it at all now. I, I, I feel like I'm a different person. I've got a different head on my shoulders. Uh, perhaps I, you know, I did it to death. You know, the opposite of Stevens. Perhaps I, you know, I did it for too long, and therefore started to resent the the, the grind and resent the the travelling and the match play, and learn to to not like the match play in the end. So I now look and think, nope, great, loved every minute of it, but I'm a different person now. Looking at snooker through a 21st century lens, it's impossible to imagine just how big the game was in the 80s and 90s. As Davis and Hendry remember, the sport was a phenomenon. The players were stars and millions watched on TV. Well, I mean, the way I would put it, I mean, even, you know, today, 
people still come up to you and say, well, oh, God, I remember Bill Werbenuk, I remember Kirk Stevens, I remember Tony, all these players that were playing in the 80s. There were, because there was only three or four TV channels and snooker seemed to be on all the time. Uh, there was a title like, late 80s, it was just on, it was on ITV, it was on BBC, it was, there, was, there was, I don't know, many tournaments during the year. So everyone became household names. As I say, nowadays, you know, no disrespect to Mark Selby, who's a world number one, but he could probably walk down most streets in the UK and people wouldn't know who he was. Where in the late 80s, 90s, that wasn't the case. Snooker players were probably the most famous sportsmen, even more than footballers. Looking back to the 80s, um, the, the snooker players were in demand, um, not just for exhibitions and, and everybody wanted tournaments all over the place, but... We were, being, we were on television programmes all over the place, making appearances at places we never would have done beforehand. We were on Spit and Image. Uh, Spit and Image. First, <laughs> apparently the first ever sporting person to be on Spit and Image, apparently. You were? Yeah, apparently so, yeah. Um, and along the way, we, um, out of the blue, we became uh, pop stars. Snooker Noopy got to number six in the charts. Impossible. I mean, pop, pop stars are stretching that a bit. No, I think we were. <laughs> I think you're fine, we were pop stars. We had a video, we were on top of the pops. I think you're fine, actually. Think about it. I'll sign a copy for you if you want it. <laughs> yeah, so there we were. We were above uh, George Benson, Whitney Houston, Madonna. I mean, how do you think they felt? And I think it just sums up the era that a, a record, a, a snooker loopy, brilliantly made by Chas and Dave. Sad, obviously, that Chas has now passed away, but a brilliant novelty record was was in the charts and it actually got in the charts and kids were seeing it in the school playgrounds. And did you have a copy? No, I can't remember kids singing it in the school playground. They did. They? Oh, yeah, they did in our area. Surely, <laughs> did you buy a copy? You can own up now. You must have a No, copy. I bet you had one. <laughs> I could sell you one. <laughs> Reunite is a tongue-tied media production for TalkSport. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.